Hey there, my name is Kim, and this is my podcast, Power Up Your Performance. I believe that we have the power to rewrite our stories, change the trajectory of our lives, pour love into the world, conquer monumental challenges, and that movement can be a catalyst for change. Let's grow together. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance. Hey, hey, I'm so glad you're here. It's been a bit since I've released a new episode, April to be exact, and here we are in August, the first week of school in Kansas. So I basically took the entire summer off. We had a busy summer around the Peak household. You might remember that I started a new business in January. Iris Digital Media Group is a social media marketing agency that I started with my oldest daughter, Abby, who is an actress living in New York. So we, we've been working on that, been busy taking care of lots of clients, taking vacations. We went to Hawaii this summer, which was awesome. Been living a little bit more relaxed pace since the kids were out of school. I have one daughter starting nursing school this fall. So we've just kind of been scrambling, getting her all ready for school, moved to a new apartment, all kinds of family-related things over the summer. And we've been spending a lot of time training her new husky puppy. We've been working with a trainer and working one to two times a week, just trying to make sure that she is the best canine citizen possible. And she is a very, very sweet girl. We actually got her to swim in the deep end of our pool for the first time today. So that was kind of fun. So Over the next few weeks, I'm going to release 10 new episodes that I recorded between April and late July, and I loved them when I recorded them, and then as I sat down to edit, it was like they were brand new again. I have this amazing ability to forget things and then experience them all over again like they are brand new for the second time or the 20th time or the 100th time. I do this with movies too. So anyway, I'm really excited to release these and to listen to all of them as I edit them and get them all ready for you. Today's interview is with Maureen Gibbons. Maureen is an emergency room physician at a level two trauma center. She's a triathlon coach and a sports nutritionist. She loves bringing her message to the public as a speaker, coach, and best-selling author of Happy First, How to Win Life in the Moment, at Home, at Work, at Gym, and even in the Kitchen. She's been helping guide people toward their best careers and lives since her days as an athletic trainer 25 years ago. Maureen's journey through marriage, medical training, and parenthood have taught her the value of true happiness. She's mastered the art of going home to make breakfast pancakes after a night shift of life and death situations. She lives a real life in the real world. And then, if you want to learn more about Maureen, you can head over to standsmiling.com for information on her philosophy, coaching, and speaking opportunities, or livehappyfirst.com to check out her book and get a free gift. So enjoy this interview. Hi, Maureen. Welcome to the show. Hi there. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So I was looking through your Instagram and I have to get one important topic out of the way. First things first. I saw that you eat your s'mores with a peanut butter cup in the middle. (laughs) Yes, actually, that was a a suggestion uh, by a very good friend of mine. And 
she, she talk about an elevated s'mores game. She actually doesn't buy graham crackers and chocolate anymore. She just brings fudge stripes with her. <gasps> That's smart. I'm like, hmm, yep, yep. She's I winning like the s'mores game. Yeah, I have eaten mine with peanut butter cups in the middle forever. And so anytime <laughs> we do that, I always have to buy the peanut butter cups and people think I'm crazy. And I'm like, why not a peppermint patty or a peanut butter cup? Oh. Or, There's all kinds of great chocolate. Why <laughs> limit ourselves to plain old chocolate? That's perfect. And now they make the, the peanut butter cup thins. So it's the perfect ratio of peanut yes. butter and chocolate. I agree. I agree. Anyway, I thought that was really cool when I saw that. Now, you are an emergency room physician, a triathlon coach, a sports nutritionist, and recently you became an author. How do you find time for all of that? I think the easiest way to to express that is one thing at a time, sort of. Uh, because I think some days like today, I feel like I, I have a lot more than one thing to get off my plate. I'm actually starting a new online coaching business. That's been a dream for 25 years. I've done a lot of one-on-one coaching, but I've never reached any real big audiences. And so that has, that is my big thing. I don't really do any nutrition coaching right now. I put that to the side. I do a little bit of triathlon coach, but this new thing is big. I'm, I'm, it's bigger than I thought it could be. So it's pretty that, exciting. That is so exciting. At what stage of your life were you in when you started triathlon? Have you always done swim, bike, run, or when did you get into it? Two days before I got married in 1999, I remember sitting, talking to my mom and my husband, and I said, I'd really like to do a triathlon. And they blew me off, honestly. And because I was never an athlete, put that in quotes. But I was a swimmer since I was about 13. I swam up through a year in college, and then I switched over to be a student athletic trainer at that time. So I grew up with a swimming background. But as far as the biking, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not a natural cyclist and the running I started doing in 2003 ish. So I was in my thirties, but I started looking toward triathlon when we started medical school in 2002. And I started running. My first marathon was in medical school because I was determined that they weren't going to take everything from me. I know that sounds really immature at this point when I say it out loud, but I really wanted to hold on to my own goals and dreams and things I wanted to get done. So I ran marathons first, I had a swimming background, and then I did my first triathlon in 2009. Wow. So I see that you also on Instagram go by the name Iron Mo. So you're not just doing sprint triathlons, you're doing big time-consuming, not just long races, but time-consuming training. So how did you find time to do that while in school? Because you're a doctor, that's not easy school either. It's not like you were just out partying all the time. Yeah, no, no such luck there. I So my first Ironman, actually my first triathlon was in 2008 because it was in the fall of 2008 and I was still in medical school. So that was doable. Obviously a sprint try, that kind of training was certainly doable in residency. Looking back, I'm not sure how, honestly, even sprint <laughs> try training. I'm like, I, I don't know. But Ironman training, obviously, yeah, it gets, it gets pretty hairy. My first Ironman was uh, four months after, four or five months after we got out of residency. So I had, I was able to build while I was working a job, a a real job that isn't quite as demanding, but it was pretty demanding. It was, it's, I don't care how you slice it. I don't care if you have nothing else to do in your life. Ironman training is kind of a big commitment. It is. It is. 
So I really think that's fascinating because one of the things that you're doing with your book, right, is you're trying to teach people how to keep that sliver of themselves and that piece of happiness and not lose themselves in their work. All right. So tell us about the book and the thoughts behind that, how you came to the the decision that this is the type of book you needed to write. So weirdly, it started, the downhill spiral started shortly after that first Ironman. Now that I think back, it was a lot of training. I was in a job that was unfortunately not the best environment for me. There was a lot of backstabbing type politics that I don't really get into at work. I just do my job and I like to, I love my job. It was a difficult situation and it got really bad and it got bad at home. It got bad in my head, which is really what the book is about. The book is about, and that's where it started. That's where my big journey started. I wanted to write a book for 25, but I realized looking back that my big journey started about 11 years ago and I was at a pretty big low. My job was very difficult. My home life was very difficult. A beloved pet had just passed and I couldn't get out of my own way. And I didn't, people talk about suicide and I will never talk about that lightly, but it, it, it felt like at that point that I needed to think about that as an option. And so I can understand when my patients come into me and they say, I'm having thoughts of wanting to kill myself. I'm like, yeah, I get that. And and it's a good place to have come from because a lot of providers, service providers, nurses, physicians, mid-levels don't, I know this is a little bit of a tangent here, but it was a big low, but they don't, when people say, I thought about killing myself, they're like, how could you ever do that? I, I know how, because when you're in a spot that's that dark, it looks like that's a viable option. But it really wasn't a viable option for me. It just wasn't, thank God. And so I realized that I had to fix things inside. I had to almost recreate some things that I, my brain was broken. My brain was really broken. And it was just years and years of thinking crap thoughts, honestly. And it it cements them and it makes them take over and you start to think the reality or you don't even know how to find your way out of them. So this book was born over 10 years of a complete transformation mentally from just the way I look at things, the way I interpret things, which is probably a big one. The way I tackle tasks even is different. The way I eat is different. The way I am a binge eater by trade. I've been uh, using food as a drug since about age six. So it's a difficult, that was, that was my last bit of things I had to deal with. That was my first comfort and my my last thing I had to grieve, really. Very interesting. So then you touched on things like food, sleep, nutrition, exercise. What are some of those things that you think go into that overall package to helping somebody either get out of that rut or feel like they're starting on the path to becoming happier? So I think the the neat thing about happiness is that we already are happy. We just, it's always there. The whole first section of the book is we are born from the same material as the stars and the sun and the trees. Our bodies are made up of the same elements that make up nature. And we come from the same place. Matter can neither be, or energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So from a basic science standpoint, you take it from that, you realize, wait a second. If we are just this energy, and granted, our brains have a lot to say about this. We've got some hecklers in the background, you know, Statler and Waldorf up in the balcony that are giving us crap. But if we are made of just this energy, we are happy. 
And a lot of times, what I, one of the first things I bring people through is where do you feel like you're not happy? Where do you feel like, are you miserable at work? Are you miserable at home? Usually by the time people do come and see me, they're miserable, all of the above. So I, the change to be happy is weirdly enough, actually instantaneous. So if you learn to see things, that's what I do in my coaching is I show people to see things the way they really are. So you are naturally happy. However, there are these things like sleep and food and relationships and work that kind of block you off from connecting to that happy first energy. So if you're only sleeping four hours a night, I can guarantee you, you're not going to be able to access that happy first energy. You're going to be irritable. You're just, you're not going to be a conduit for that energy anymore. So one of the best things that I tell, I tell people to start with sleep all the time because that's a, it's a human need. People say, Oh, I only need three or four hours. No, you've learned to survive on three to four hours, but if we could get you to six, seven and eight, then you can really thrive because you don't need as much time to get things done because you're focused and you're happy and you're connected. So as an example. Yeah. I like that. I was just thinking that kind of goes against everything you hear about when it comes to med school. Yes, that was a completely different story. You slept when you could, you ate when you could. Isn't that interesting though, when you think about it, because here you have people whose job is to heal and the whole way training is based is to deprive you of those basic needs that you need to function on a high level. I think it's good and bad. I had the luxury of having 80 hour work weeks implemented in my residency program because of poor outcomes prior to that, that you know, the government said residents can only work 80 hours a week. So I, that was a luxury that I, I was afforded. And that was good because it tried to control some of that, but some of the research into why that's not a good thing was actually fairly solid because the more times you hand off a patient, the more mistakes get made. Yep. And I work nights, all strictly nights in the ER. So I have to flip from nights to days when I call this my day job. And that's, that's my night job when I have to flip. And sometimes I'll be managing a bunch of tasks, a bunch of critical patients or whatever at work. And I'll actually ask my nursing staff, did I say that out loud? They're like, yeah, we got it. And I was like, okay, good. So a lot of it becomes, you learn to function with a lot going on in your brain and very fatigued because that's the real world in medicine. Surgeons who get out of residency, they're not locked into 80 hours a week. They're tired. They're really tired, which is also why I serve on the physician wellness committee at my hospital. Oh, I like that. I like that. So I read a headline over the weekend that talked about people in all professions, but especially people in the medical professions that now that I don't know if it's safe to say COVID is winding down, but now that we're working our way out of it and life is going to be whatever normal is that they're cashing in their PTO, quitting their jobs because they're looking for happiness or they want to know they got so stressed or they want to know what else there is in life. And it seemed to me that kind of tied in with what your book is about. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of physicians retired if they were close to retirement age, when COVID hit, they bagged out, they left. And every year, this is is a stat from about 10 years ago. So I'm probably misquoting. Uh, But every year we lose the equivalent of a graduating medical school class to suicide in physicians in this country because of the stress, because of the burnout and COVID 
through that into hyperdrive. And I'd like to see some studies and I haven't done much research into that lately because I, I don't want to sit in that space. I want to sit in the space of bringing people out of it. But even my husband had a couple of colleagues of his full-time physicians. He's an emergency physician as well, but he had a couple, <clears throat> excuse me, colleagues, like they left medicine to homeschool their children because they could not do both and because their kids were stuck at home. And I know that there's been a ton of studies about women in the workforce. For example, we were forced to do very different things during this past year. And now that the stress is relieved somewhat, like you said, we're learning to live with it. If nothing else, we're learning, this is our world. Um, people burned themselves out pretty badly. They're the medical professionals. It was a scary time. It still is a scary time, but it was really scary for a while. So what are some of the things that if somebody finds medical or not, if they find themselves in a situation where they're just not happy with where their life is, what are some of the first steps you recommend for pulling yourself out of it? One of the most important things is to almost take a step out of your narrative, take a step out of your own brain. Because we have these stories that just, we th with their, they just, they're there all the time. So we think they're real <clears throat> when there could be multiple options. For example, one of the, one of the fast examples I can give you is people will say, oh, I'm just in a, I'm in a dead end job or I've, I'm in, I'm making great money. This is even worse. I'm making great money. Uh, I used to love my job, but I can't stand going anymore. And I'm leaving. I'm going to go travel the world and take my savings. You know, mm -hmm. so people just leave. I'm like, yeah, granted, we all have the escape fantasy. Don't lie to me and tell you, tell me you don't. Mine always involves a beach of some sort. Mine um, but, too. <laughs> yeah, lots of worms standing my toes. We got this. But the interesting thing is if you take a step out of the narrative, or if you can even narrow it down, my boss is a jerk. Okay, stop. Even I'll tell people to grasp the different stories. Like, what if your boss has an ill child at home? that they're worried about and it is underlying and that's their stress all day long because they don't know what to do about that. And they're super private. So they don't tell you that part mm -hmm. or what if they've got an addiction issue and you don't know it. And they're just, so we always, because of course you know, our lives are lived from our perspective. If you can take a step out of that narrative and say, what could be a different story? I don't know, make up something outlandish. My, my boss is a scroll and he's trying to take over the world. So I'm my Marvel movie reference for the podcast. <laughs> so my boss is a scroll. Make up. I don't care how outlandish it is, because if you stop and think, wait a second, maybe I I don't know. Maybe I don't know. And and that happened to me right before I started writing the book in earnest, like getting it on paper and you know getting it to be published. My boss approached me. I can't believe right. I can't believe I hit a low again. Here we go. My boss approached me because he thought I was having trouble at work. He said, a couple people have come to me and they're worried about, it. he said, I want to cut your shifts into different segments. So you work shorter shift groups. I said, and I yelled at him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Here's my, yeah. You're really irritable. You're yelling at your boss, right? Here's your red flag for the day. And so I yelled at him and I was very angry and we have a very good rapport. And he told me to shut up. I said, I want you to shut up and listen. <laughs> and I did. And I listened and a little voice came to the back of my head that this is something I live by now. Maybe I don't know best. Maybe I don't know best. Maybe this person has some input that is useful to me. So say back to the situation where your boss is a jerk, which mine is not. Maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't know 
you know, maybe he's not a jerk. Maybe he's having a really rough time. And immediately, I don't know if you can feel that, but it's a shift. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you start thinking, huh, maybe I shouldn't really worry about my boss. What's going on my side of the street? And I, and it'll make you shift things inward. And at the time when my boss came to me, I, I went back to my side of the street. I'm like, oh boy, it's filthy over here. And so it was a really good eye opener, but you don't want to have the eye openers, right? You don't want to get pulled out of your job. You don't want to have to quit your job. You don't want to leave your marriage when you're like, geez, my husband's great to me. I just can't stand it. I feel because that's what your brain does. That's what we do. We start to get more isolated and more caught up in the old story, the old narrative. And if you can just make a crack in there, let the light come in. That's when I like to get people when they just cracked and they're like, oh, I think there might be a different way to do this. That's when I want to grab them and coach them because there they don't know the way. Yeah. That's a great visual too. Just, it just, I can feel that just the way you said it with the imagining the light shining through the crack. Yeah. Just because if you're you're in that dark room and you're like, there's, I can't get out of here. And I think that's probably where the suicide thought comes in. If you stay in that room long enough, there's no way out. It's dark in here. Yeah. I love that your book has the palm tree on the front (laughs) because Hawaii is my favorite place in the world. And a couple of years ago, I was, we went for Christmas and it was so sad that I had to come home to another Kansas winter. And it's my dream to live in Hawaii someday full time. My husband says, people don't really want like living in Hawaii full time. And I said, I think I would like to give it a shot and find out if I like it or not. But I did a whole podcast episode one year about how can you bring that spirit of Hawaii home with you and create just a little bit of Hawaii you know, the things that you like every day, because you don't have to be in an area with a beach and an ocean to get some of those calming, peaceful, friendly, whatever it is, the great food, all those things that you love about a place. That's perfect. That is absolutely perfect because you channel that daily aloha into your life. You make sure that you do the things that give you that peace that you have. And I call those places grounding places. I can't remember if I put it in the book or not, but we all have grounding places. And Hawaii is one of mine as well. Hawaii and Florida are two of them. The other one's Canada. So that's an, huh. <laughs> it's a little chilly. Again, places I'm not going to live full-time, that's one of them. Uh, but <laughs> right? yeah, I'll bring my inner Canadian, but it's only when I don't want to apologize. In interjecting that daily aloha, the spirit of aloha into your day, And even coming across with your, I don't know if you have kids or your partner or, you know, people in your life. Imagine if you spoke to everyone the way you spoke to people on vacation. Isn't that true? Because you're in a good place. Could be the way they are when you're on the beach and you run into a stranger. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Yeah. Oh, hello. I'm out. Yep. And that's it. There's no resentment. There's no, oh, he's such a jerk. I ran into somebody. That's about it. Beginning, end of story. It takes the drama out. Other thing about being on a tropical island is everybody's always on island time. You're never in a hurry. (laughs) You don't care if somebody's running late. And sometimes that just isn't practical in the real world though either. It isn't. We do have to, we do have to live a, a real life in the real world. And it's tough. It is. We had a time to meet. And we're meeting at that time. But even just the spirit of conversation, once you're where you need to be or doing what you need to be, doing it without that pressure that say you have a project to do 
Yeah, absolutely. Things have to get done. This is the real world. We've got, we've got to get things done. And if you can take a moment and step out of that pressure, because the pressure is what we've been taught to do, at least what I've been taught to do, mm-hmm. um, because you have to get it done faster or better or be more focused. I can't be focused when I've got everyone in my head yelling at me to be focused. So <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly you know what happens. So I take, I take a step back, light a candle. All right. I have these little hourglass timers that I use that I originally bought them for my son to get him to get things done. And now I use them. So that's fantastic. But he, he's like, mom, I think you might need these. I'm like, maybe I don't know best. Okay. Let me try them. So now when I have it, so now there's a visual, right? And it has sand, which is always nice. Um, But now I have a visual. So if I'm like, all right, listen, I've got to check my email. You've got five minutes to check your email. That's it. And once that five minutes is done, if I didn't get to do a task that was in the email, it gets flagged and I'll do it at another time when I more have more than five minutes because man, the junk mail, but taking things don't have to be done. You don't have to rush. And that's what I think Island time, if you can bring that spirit of Aloha in, that was the, when my cover designer came to me with that cover, I designed my own a while ago. Yeah, it stunk. It was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So I hired a cover designer and she came to me with that. And it was like, where have you been all my life? I didn't even know I needed it. And that's the book. That's the book is how to be happy in real life with really bad things that happen. You know, I mean, life in the ER isn't always uh, rainbows and unicorns. Yeah. So the full title of the book for the audience is Happy First, How to Win Life in the Moment, at Home, at Work, at the Gym, and Even in the Kitchen. Where does the kitchen come in? (laughs) Uh, So, yes, because of my long travels with food, my love-hate relationship with food. And most of us, as I see, right, as I see the effects of lifestyle diseases long-term, every day. I think about this a lot. And that's a bit of an obsession, right? I've tried to be a peak performer and food gets in the way, a lot of that. But instead of prescribing what I used to do 20 years ago, my nutrition coaching was always a, here, do this. I know what's best. (sighs) Go figure. Here we go again with that. Maybe I don't know best. And I don't know, but I like to work with people from a physical standpoint of what do you think standing between you and that happy first energy? Because I can almost guarantee there is something you're ingesting that is blocking it. Whether it's you're eating meat products, but you're so conflicted about the environment or whatever it is, that's you, but that's you. I don't have judgment. I don't care. I don't care if you go eating crickets. I'm not eating exo bars. It's just not happening. I'm sorry. I can't do it. (laughs) I want to like them, but I can't. I don't pass judgment on people for what they eat anymore. I used to, when I used to coach people, because I thought I knew everything. Welcome to getting older. And there's an appropriate amount for people to eat. I don't exactly know what that is. I tell people start with calculators, for example, you've got to start somewhere, but then you've got to make a roadmap for yourself. And I'm oddly, for most of us, I'm oddly against intuitive eating at the beginning, because if you knew how to intuitively eat, you wouldn't need help. And eventually I would love for everyone in the world to get to an intuitive eating point. But even in the kitchen is what are things that make you happy? There are some people that love to cook and that brings them a huge source of joy. 
I would suggest they plan that into their day. And they, they start to do that and start to incorporate that and make it a, almost an appointment. If you love getting your hands dirty in that bread dough, do it. Make the time to do it. It is important. And that helps connect you to your happy first energy. Things like that. So whether it's what you eat, how you eat it, sitting with your family. If you don't like cooking, but you really love sitting with your family. I don't prefer to eat breakfast with people, as an example. I need to chill out in the morning. (laughs) I need to get myself together. I know that. My husband knows that. Everyone knows that pretty much, except for the one dog. She doesn't (laughs) know that. But you really have to look at, do I thrive on this? Do I not thrive on this? What am I connecting with that's allowing me to be happy? And sometimes it's being busier. One of the things I did talk about in the book is some people... They love having spinning 14 plates in the air. They've got this business and this business and they, and they love hopping back and forth and the, the sense of accomplishment and that feeds their soul. Now, a lot of times people will do that and they come home and their home life is crap. That's not what I'm talking about. It's the people that are like, they come home from work and their phone goes down and they're done and they enjoy, they, it's a tough, I'd say balance, but I don't think there's any real work-life balance. I think you're always on a teeter totter. It's always going to sway one way or the other in any aspect of life. It's really finding out what floats your boat. Yep. I was thinking when you were talking about the eating, how some people like to cook and others don't, or maybe it is sitting with your family. And I do think it's important to figure out what piece of that fulfills you. So like on days when I am super busy working and all of a sudden I look down and it's 5.30, 6 o'clock and I'm like, oh, it's time to figure out what to feed my people. I have been doing Green Chef and so we have three meals a week that I know that on those days I just go open the fridge, grab the recipe card that came and said, here's what's for dinner tonight. There's no figuring it out and it works great when... I'm really busy and I haven't done a good job of going to the grocery store and planning out all of our menus for the week. And I don't mind cooking. I think my girls will always help. I don't mind the cooking, but I think it's like knowing yourself too and knowing what pieces of it you do and don't like. I think that's exactly it. And I've tried for years to try to plan more meals with our family because my husband and I are both shift workers. So it's pretty difficult to get all the pieces of the puzzle to fit on the same day. And realistically, we are probably available to eat dinner two times a week as a family of three. And it's been a difficult balance because trying to get the voice of you should do this even just changing that to, you know what, I'd really like to look at this week and see what I can plan to put together. Even just changing those words around because I've spent so many years with the, you really should plan this better. Yeah. And then it just, it's tiring. It's, oh, it's, it drains your soul. You can feel that, that instead of saying, when you said I have green chef, those three days I do this and we eat and it's light and it's free and it's simple. And it's just on a different level of me saying, I guess I better find a meal service because I have to figure something out. Yeah. It it just feels so different. And we don't have to be miserable. So that brings up another thing I would love your take on that I have been trying to be more sensitive to since COVID began. 
And that's, you hear all the people who give the advice about if you want to change your exercise, if you want to change your nutrition, this is the way it should be done. You have to wake up and you have at four o'clock before all the noise starts and you have to do your workout at the beginning of the day and have this four hour morning routine. And of course I'm exaggerating, but that's what it feels like. It might as well be. Yeah. And a lot of that is how I function, but with more people at home and everybody's schedule is different. I'm like, that all went out the window for me. And (laughs) so now I have a lot more empathy for people who aren't maybe natural morning people who don't do it that way. So I would love your take on there's some things that will help you feel better. Like maybe it might be a good idea to journal, but you don't have to journal every morning at 5 a.m. with a cup of coffee before your kids wake up. Where does that take you in your thought? I'm not a morning person. If, if you were to have my mother here with me, she'd be like, oh, heck no, she's not going <laughs> to be. <laughs> my mother and my husband both standing here and be like, don't talk to her anymore. But <laughs> so it's part of my work nights, right? Because then I get to actually yeah. wake up at three in the afternoon. I still take yeah, a little bit sense. to get going, but meh, it's not a morning. Mornings are good when they're mine and I don't have anything pressing on the schedule. And I think that's why conventional wisdom, for lack of a better phrase, tells us to get up before everyone. So you carve out your own time. But what about if you don't? What about if you have a a five-year-old who comes in and says, mommy, I don't feel good. Boom, time's done. Because that happens at four in the morning. Everything happens at four. But what if instead, I have a a five-minute morning routine I give to my clients. Um, So just a five-minute morning. And it's, it, it, it does involve a journal, but I don't have people journal in the morning. I just have people plunk a journal template that they make up. Usually I, I make it up with them, uh, but they make up a very short journal template in notes. They copy it and plunk it in for the day. So they know their journal's set for the day. And I have them do a, a couple of things. And one of these I learned from uh, my business coach, Lauren Tickner, who's phenomenal, but she's what if, at the end of the day, I will be proud that I dot, dot, dot. That's the only thing I have people do in the morning. I started a new food plan, for example. And so at the end of today, I will be proud that I followed that food plan because that's, it's going to be that way for another week or so until I actually get this thing settled in. But that way that's done. So I know I'll finish the rest later because at the end of the day, it's the three things I did, three things I didn't do. So are three things I need work on or things I'd like to improve. Uh, But That way I don't have to sit down with a pen and paper and carve out this time. And it's, listen, you plunk it in. It takes five minutes. There's a couple other tasks in the five minute morning. I suggest people look at a vision board every morning. Takes 30 seconds. Uh, Mine's actually the screen on my phone. So Mm -hmm. that way I, I make a point to look at it in the morning, but it triggers my memory all day long. This is what I'm working for. And so it's a lot of connecting to the things that, make me thrive. I'm excited to bring these concepts to people. I just, the morning routines or the exercise routines where you've got to do high intensity. I don't have the energy to do high intensity, most desire. Let me rephrase. Uh, I could probably guilt myself into it, but if say you're going to the gym and, and you get a crap workout in or what some people would consider a crap workout, that's fine. You got up and moved. Like this isn't the only day, God willing, that we have. It's about cumulative daily efforts. It's about every day you look for something to remove, usually, that is blocking that connection to happy first. I love that. 
So what else about finding happy first do people need to know, um, not just only about how to find the book and how to work with you, but just what what's the main thing you want people to remember from this talk? The number one thing that people need to see is that you are already happy. And I want people to hear that statement and pause and think, wait, what? Because everything you need to be happy, you already have. And the most important thing we can do is see that. Because once you see that, you start to think, maybe I'm wrong. And I'm not saying I don't like nice things. I'm not saying don't chase down the money and starting a new business. I, I want to make it thrive. I want to, I, I just, I want to have fun with it, but it is a business. You know, and, but I want people to see that you don't have to forego everything. You don't have to run away from your job. You don't have to abdicate responsibility. Uh, those things are enjoyable too. And if they fit in with your persona and if they fit in with your, your soul, if they make your soul feel alive, those are the things that will connect you to that happy first energy. So yeah, to get the book, it's on Amazon, Happy First. And to work with me, my website is now live. It is standsmiling.com. So that's my, that's the coaching platform. And that sort of came about, about 10 years ago, really solidified about four and a half years ago, because I don't standing in your place in the world for me as a physician, as a mom, as a spouse, as a person, as an athlete, being able to stand in your stand tall, like the palm tree, they sway in hurricanes. They're good. They take a lot of crap, but they're standing and to stand smiling really means you're rooted in that happy first energy. I love that. Do you, as an emergency room physician, have much opportunity to talk to people about stuff like this? No, that's the short version. Uh, Sometimes I do. I can grab a patient or two, a shift sometimes that I can give them a snippet of where I want them to go or not where I want them to go, what I'd like to show them. They shouldn't be looking at me. They need to be looking at where I'm pointing. Because uh, I'm not the answer. All I am is a guidepost. So I'm a co-pilot on this whole journey. But if I can at least throw them something, I, my favorite thing to do, if, if I've got a, a guy in his 40s who's like, I don't know, everything hurts. And I'm like, he got an extra 100 pounds on you. So it's probably not helping. And I'll tell them something simple. Listen, I want you to eat, try to eat closer to the sun. Those potato chips, they haven't seen the sun in two years. <laughs> So try to find something that's seen the sun in the last six months and have just little, just a little thing to just, again, create that crack. Maybe if I can just make the crack that, Oh, wait a second. What about this? Or what about this? And then once people start asking questions, then maybe they'll go to their doctor and say, so the ER doctor said this, what does this mean? And then they can pick it up or maybe I should find a nutritionist. I don't know what to eat. Just what about this? And I start asking questions because once the patient or once the client is asking questions, that's when we start getting somewhere. Yep. That's great. We were just in the emergency room. My daughter did something to her toe and that's way too long of a story to go into at the moment. (laughs) But I was so impressed that we had this nurse who we were just chit-chatting and she was really going into some of that kind of stuff. And I was like, that's really nice because 
I like to hear these other ideas rather than let's just throw a bunch of pills at people and expect things to get better. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't times. No, yeah, you need works. the pills. You need the pills. Yeah. But, but I, I also liked hearing other thoughts beyond let's just fix everything with pills. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if we could increase our ability to thrive and be happy and decrease this cortisol just from crappy thoughts in your head. You know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a nurse practitioner and we're, she, she's like, I just listened to this podcast and they were saying how so many things that we put on our bodies with cosmetics are cancerous. She actually had cancer. She is now in remission. And I said, let me just throw a thought in here. What about toxic thoughts and worrying about all that? Do you think that would have a, a detrimental effect? So I didn't think about that. I said, yeah, I said, I'd probably go for the big rocks first. What are you actually putting in your body first? Take a look at that. Go for the on the body later. I said, if you fly in planes, you get radiation. I said, right now I'm sitting outside in the sun. So I'll probably use mascara. (laughs) So so, we were just talking about just where's your threshold? What resonates with you? Because there was a talcum powder, baby powder thing where we found out that it causes cancer and all that goodness. Oh, good thing I hate it anyway. And determining what works for you and not to the detriment of anyone else. That's the key. Smoking is one thing. If you say, yeah, smoking yeah, definitely makes my soul feel alive. Okay. That's like saying sleeping three hours a night also makes your soul feel alive. You're lying. So <laughs> you don't have the crack. I'm not going to be able to make the crack. I'll see you when you have the crack. Yeah, that's great. This has all been so interesting. I've loved talking to you. Are, are you still training for any triathlons or anything right now? I actually just did the bike and a little bit of a run uh, for a half Ironman. We went out and raced again. It was pretty exciting. Last two days ago, last weekend, we exciting. were slated to do Ironman Texas. That was canceled. We are postponed until next year. I'm very bittersweet. Of course, I really, it was hard to watch race day come and go with beautiful weather, but Next year, um, I can be fitter. I can be stronger. I can be in an even better place. So, all right, we're going to go for it in 2022. Yep. And I think that's another great example of just of how you just changed the story right there. Looked at it different instead of dwelling on what could have been. Yeah. And, and admitting, yeah, it's sad. It's a bummer. Yeah, and I talked sure. to all my friends that day who were going to do it with me. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, we're pretty sad. And then we kept going. (laughs) Right. All right. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fantastic. Thank you for joining me for season four of Power Up Your Performance. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, review, and follow. Dream big and get out there and explore.